Let's just pause again and ask for God's help as we consider his word uh, this morning. Let's pray. Dear Father, as we come to your words, we pray that you will grant us humble hearts and open ears. Ears to listen and hearts to receive what you're speaking to us. Lord, we need to hear your voice this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh man. One of the uh, the standout days for me last summer was going to uh, the theme park with the Sunday school. We had a bright sunny day, uh, we had a lovely drive through the Yorkshire Dales uh, and we had lots of fun. Uh, and I remember being stood by the dodgem cars and watching the kids, they would go on the dodgems, they would come off the dodgems, they'd run back round and then, then go back on. Uh, and they had quite a, quite a few goes uh, and we watched them driving around and bashing into each other. Uh, but when you see the dodgems, there's always someone who doesn't quite know how the dodgems work. They get stuck in a corner and they can't figure out how the thing backs up. Uh, they're pressing the pedals and they don't know that you have to turn the wheel all the way around uh, if it's going to back up. And you kind of want to go over and, and help them out because they seem to be, seem to be struggling. Uh, they don't know how to drive. Uh, and we've been going through this book of, of Job. Uh, and as Job has gone through what he's gone through, all of his difficulties uh, and his trials and his pain and his suffering, it seems to him, from his perspective, like God needs some help at the wheel. That's what it seems like. He's been questioning God's justice. He's been questioning whether God knows how to drive his world. Is God fit to rule the world? He's had lots and lots and lots of questions. He's wanted to speak to God. And now, finally, at the end, towards the end of the book, he has his wish and God speaks to him. Last week, we were looking at this chap, Elihu. Elihu had been affirming, no, no, Job, God is just. God always does what's right. He painted a picture of a glorious uh, God who is in control of his world. He, he, he pointed us to the weather, the storm. Uh, and it's out of the storm that Elihu created with his words that God now speaks to Job. What does God say? 38 verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans without words of knowledge? Another translation would be, Who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? Job, with his words, has been cast in shadows over God's government. And God now calls Job to account. Job, who was full of questions for God, is now questioned by God, question after question after question uh, about the world and how it works. God says, in a paraphrase to Job, Job, you think you know how to drive. Come up here and take the wheel. Can you rule the world? And it's this glorious poem that we, we have, four chapters. We're going to look at two uh, this morning and we'll look at two chapters after Christmas. But this beautiful poetry of how God is Lord of creation, how, how he rules his world. And at the end of it, Job is left speechless. He doesn't want to ask any more questions. He doesn't want to say anything else. He just wants to lie down in the dust before the Lord. 
the questioner becomes the question. Let's look at this uh, poem. We've got two headings for us to gather our thoughts under, and we're just going to work our way through. We won't be able to go into all the details. There's a lot there, but I'd encourage you this afternoon, if you have half an hour, sit down and, and read the poem uh, through, through again. The first uh, heading is Lord of the Cosmos. Lord of the Cosmos. Like I said, Job is encouraged uh, now to take the hot seat, to take the control seat, uh, to govern the world. That's a far harder job than sorting out Brexit. Uh, this is to, to, to rule the world in all of its complexity. And no, one, no, no sooner does one of these questions come to Job than another question comes and another question comes and another question comes. And the first bit of the, the, the poem uh, speaks about order and chaos. Order and chaos, that's the first two sections what they're about. And they take us right back to the, the start of the world, right, right back to Genesis 1. When the world was good. So verses four to seven. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In verses four to seven, God is pictured as the, the master architect, the one whose measurements are precise and, and perfect, who sets the world up exactly the way he, he wants it. Have you seen that, that program, Grand Designs, where they, they set out to make a, a very nice house? God has made a beautiful world and he's designed it exactly the way he wants to. God asked Job, come on, Job, what, what materials did we use? How does it all fit together? Who was doing what there at the beginning? Surely, surely you know the answers to those questions. Do you remember, Job? That, that great song that came out at the start of creation, when the, all the morning stars joined together and the angels sang for joy at my good and glorious world. Do you remember that, Job? Do you? And then we turn from the goodness and the order. We turn to the sea in verse 8. God asked Job, Job, can you control the sea? Verse 8, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? God is the one who controls his, the sea. He, he, he calls it, it's like his baby. He, he wraps it up in, in cloth. God is the one who sets limits for the sea. He says, come this far, but, but don't come any further. You proud waves, you stay there. If you were to go down to the front at Morecambe this afternoon, when the tide was out, that's if it's out this afternoon, I don't know, but when the tide's out, and draw a line in the sand and, and do what you can to stop the tide coming back in. Just, you don't stand a chance. But God says to the sea, this far and no further. Genesis 1 verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear. And he calls the waters the seas. That's how God, he has the power to rule the sea. And most of you probably know this because I think I've said it before, but the sea in the Bible is more than just a big, vast expanse of water. The sea is kind of dark uncontrollable chaos. The sea is a, a picture of evil. 
The sea is a picture of everything in opposition to our Lord God. Back in chapter 7, Job had said to God when he was asking his questions, Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set guard over me? I'm not evil. That's what Job's saying. God is a God who is Lord of all creation, Lord of the cosmos. He's Lord of the sea. And God is reminding Job that he's not only Lord over the good. He's Lord over the bad. He is in control of his world in, in, in all its fullness. The Satan back in chapter 1, he is in a way God's Satan. He is God's creature. We don't live in a world where there's lots of different spiritual powers fighting it out and we're not sure who's going to get the upper hand. We live in the world where there is one God who created all things. And God is in control. Satan, we have seen, can go no further than God allows him. Even in all his hatred and his desire to destroy people, he's not beyond the bounds of God's rule. So, so Job asked God, are you able to rule the sea? Can you shut it in? Can you say this far and no further? Do you think Job wants to try and answer any of these questions? <laughs> I don't think he does. And God moves on from chaos uh, and order to darkness and light. Verse 16. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Job, do you know where the light and the darkness come from? Can you understand the, the place where the dead go? Have you seen the gates? Do you know all these things? What about the light? Do you know where it lives? Can you get your cosmic map out, Job, and show me where the light begins? Obviously, Job can't, can he? But God can. God can. That's the point of all these questions. Job can't, but God can. Genesis 1, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day and the darkness night. And then in words of gentle rebuke, he says to Job, tell me if you, you know all this. You were born then, were you Job? The Lord is the Lord of the cosmos, the Lord of chaos and order, the Lord of darkness and light. But it's more than that. If you look at verses 12 to 15, 12 to 15, we see that God is the one who commands the dawn. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? When the sun rises, the rising sun dispels all of the darkness, doesn't it? And the darkness must flee and in these few verses God is showing Job a taste of what lies ahead he is the God who, who who rules the chaos and the order he's the God who rules the darkness and the light but he's the God who is able to bring an end to the darkness and bring an end to the chaos it's the picture there in verse 
uh, 13 of God shaking creation like a rug. You know, if you've got crumbs on the tablecloth, you might shake it out. Or you've got dust on the rug, you might take it to the back door and give it a good shake. Or you've been out picnicking and you've put your picnic blanket down, the kids have spilt the food on it and you, you shake it off. God pictures the day when one day he will shake his world and he will shake the wickedness out of it. There's coming a day when all those who raise a rebellious fist against him will be no more. What an awesome God we have, don't we? God who rules the cosmos. This is the God who we're able to speak to this morning and bring our praise to. And yet there's more questions for Job. Questions now about the storm and the stars, verses 22 to 38. God pictures the the snow and the hail as his weapons. Have you entered the storehouses of snow or seen the storehouses of hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for the day of battle? He's the one that brings the rains on the desolate lands to bring life. He's the one that gives birth to water in all its form, the the snow, the frost, the hail, the ice, the water. He's the one who, in verse 37, who has the clouds like a water skin and he can pour it out on the thirsty land. That's our God. He's, He's the Lord of the cosmos. And then the stars, verses 31 to 33, we see all sorts of constellations. The bear, Pallades, Orion. Some people have a fascination with the stars, don't they? They think if we we look at the stars, we will know the future. The The stars govern our world, so they read their horoscope. God is the one who governs the stars. God takes our attention away from the creation and fixes it upon himself. He's the one who who orders the great dance of the skies. It's not the stars that fix our destiny, it's God. Job, can you lead the great bear out with her children? Can, Can you loose Orion's belt? Of course, Job can't do those things, but God can How do you think Job feels at this point? We get to find out how he feels at the end of of chapter 40. He says, behold, at the beginning of chapter 40, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer? I lay my hand upon my mouth. That's what God's word should do for us this morning. It should humble us. It should make us feel our, our smallness in comparison to his greatness. This poem cuts us down to size, doesn't it? And helps us see the difference between our place and and God's place. We, We know so little. We can't turn the rain on and off. We can't bring the stars out at night. We can't make the sun rise in the morning. There are so many unknowns to us, but God knows it all. He made it all. And there's one Lord of the cosmos who rules this world mysteriously and marvelously. And this is the God this morning with whom we all have to deal. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't believe in this God who created all things. 
we still have to deal with him. He's our creator. He's the one who, who made us. Sometimes people ask this question, if God is powerful and God is good, then why is there so much suffering in this world? Sometimes in our pride, we want to put God in the dock. We want to make him answer our questions. But sometimes those questions, they don't come from a comfortable armchair. Sometimes those questions, like Job, they come from a a wheelchair. They come from a, a place of pain and suffering. As we look at the problems in our own lives and the problems in the lives of people around us. And this poem here at the end of Job is God's answer to us. It's God's answer. Not the kind of answer we want, but it calls us away from questions and it calls us to worship. It calls us to be in awe of him and, and who he is. A few years ago, I uh, heard of some Christians who were going through a hard time, some friends of mine. And they were in the church and the church was all praying for them. But one Sunday, the leaders of the church got up and they sought to explain the, the, the hard times that they were going through. They said this, this is Satan's doing. This is Satan's doing. It has nothing to do with God. They said, for God, it's unexpected and unforeseen. They gave the impression that somehow Satan has got the upper hand because my friends were going through difficulties. It was as though Satan was this vicious dog who had had got off the lead and got away and was wreaking havoc. I'm sure they had good intentions, the leaders of that church, to try and comfort people. To try and in some way protect God's goodness and keep his hands clean. But those words cannot bring comfort because they're not true. Like I said, the events of this world are not ordered by competing powers. They are ordered by the one Lord of the cosmos. Even even the bad things that happen, he knows. It's no comfort when people are going through hard times to tell them they're going through hard times because God has lost his grip on the steering wheel. That's no comfort at all. And that means whatever we're going through this morning, whatever we'll go through in the next week or month or year, things that we don't know, we must remember that God is in control. Whatever chaos or evil or darkness come our way, God is not absent. He knows. He's the Lord of the cosmos. In this poem, we must consider the strange and the awesome possibility that even those bad parts of creation, even those parts that have gone terrible, are somehow God's servants, somehow serving his glorious purposes. Mysteriously, even the darkness is necessary to show the light of God's goodness. And in such a world, the cross of Jesus, the ultimate act of evil, isn't it? The ultimate act of evil, that becomes the place where God's glory is seen most brightly. The cross is not a tragic accident. It's not an afterthought. It was planned before the foundation of the world by the Lord of of the cosmos. I read a helpful quote from Christopher Ashe in his commentary. He puts it like this. There is a goodness in this mixed good and evil creation that lies below the surface. 
and that will become fully evident only at the end, when the pure kindness and utter goodness of God will be vindicated for all to see. There is a goodness in this mixed good and evil world that lies below the surface. And one day we will all see that great goodness clearly. So that's the Lord of of the cosmos. And then the poem takes a turn at verse 39 and we see the Lord of its creatures. From the kind of the architecture of the, the great big house that is our world, we turn to the inhabitants, the, the creatures that live there. Again, question after question from, from God for Job to answer. All sorts of animals come out in this poem. It, it would probably have been good to have watched a series of Planet Earth this week. And then you could have you know, had these images of these animals in, in your mind. So many weird and wonderful, strange creatures uh, that live in our world. And God uses those creatures as a visual, visual aid now for Job. So verse 39. Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in the thicket? We've all seen that, that scene, haven't you, on the BBC when the, the lion is, is chasing the giraffe, catching its prey, ready to pounce, running across the grassy plains. And as it makes a kill, the death of one animal means life for another. Life and death and food are all intertwined together. God says to Job, can you hunt the prey for the lion? Can you do that like I do? Or the ravens? You think when you see them cheeping in the nest, they're crying out for the mum to bring the food back? Not according to Job, they're crying out for God. Who provides the raven its prey when its young cry to God for help? Then we have the reproductive cycle of the mountain goat. Right from start to finish. God says, do you understand that, Job? Do you understand how that all works? Lots of things now with science we understand about the birth process, but we still don't understand what triggers it off. What starts the birth process? It's God who gives food and life to all his creatures. And then the Lord points out three particular creatures to Job. I think the point that God is making to Job in verses 5 and onwards of uh, chapter 39 is that these creatures, they look wild. They look wild, but they're ruled. So he directs Job's attention, first of all, to the donkey. The wild donkey that just seems to wander around aimlessly. It seems to just want to be on its own. It seems to be un- untamable. It seems to be just free and answerable to no one. And yet the reality is that God is directing all of its steps. Then he points Job to the strong and powerful ox. Don't think here just a a cow. This is a a big beast of an animal with with big horns that lives in the wild. More like a wild bull. 
Job, would you catch the, the wild ox? Can you put a halter on him? Will he come and plough your fields? Can you send him out and expect him to come home again? And then in this kind of line that hints of what is to come, will the ox stand by your manger at night? Can you, can you do this, Job? Can you take this powerful, untamable, wild animal and make it serve you? Obviously, Job can't. But what seems wild is in fact ruled by God. And then verse 13 to 18 is the ostrich. Look at the ostrich, Job, God says. Looks all out of proportion. It's got wings that are far too small. A bird with wings that cannot fly. It's stupid. It's not got any kind of parental skills. Leaves the eggs on the floor to be trampled on. Treats the young ones as though they're not her own. Seems to be utterly foolish. It seems like something's gone wrong with the design. And yet, verse 17 says, it was all according to plan. God, he has made her forget wisdom and he has given her no share of understanding. There's no mishap. The ostrich is exactly as God designed her to be. And you see that when she runs. When she runs, the horse and his rider are left far behind and the ostrich is laughing. What looks foolish and, and unplanned is, is planned by God. These creatures look wild, but they are ruled. And then there's two more creatures uh, towards the end of our passage that Job is called to consider. The first one is the war horse, verse 19 to 25. The war horse. This was an animal of terror. War horse was like the nuclear weapon of the ancient world. A, kill, a killing machine, a, a terrifying creature. Fearless and fierce. A beast that seems to have been designed for war. God says to Job, Job, did you make that animal that way? Did you make the war horse, this terrifying creature that loves nothing more than the shrieks and cry of battle? And then finally, the hawk. Look up, Job, and see the hawk. Did you teach him to soar on the uh, currents of air? Did you teach him to make his nest up on high? Did you teach him to dive down and catch his prey? And verse 30, the final verse, is all a bit gory, isn't it? Pictures the bird of prey, his young ones suck up the blood. And where the slain are, there he is. The birds of prey would have loved the battlefield. They would have loved picking the corpses uh, clean. This isn't sort of the picture you put on a poster, is it? Or a calendar. Usually we have a calendar, we have the cuddly lion cub picture, the inspirational Bible verse underneath. No one has a picture of a carcass with a hawk crouched on it and Job uh, 3940 on the bottom, do they? That's not what we do. But that's what our world is like. That is what the creatures are like that God has made. Whenever we watch one of these nature programs on, on TV and there's a chase, a kind of prey and predator chase, Joy is always willing the, the prey to escape. She, always, she can't watch, she wants the antelope to get away from the lion. And she's always delighted if it escapes. 
but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the antelope is caught and death for the antelope means life for the lion cubs. And as Job is wrestling with his pain and his questions about suffering and God's rule of the world, God points him to these creatures. God gives him this brutal tutorial in the realities of nature and danger and death. Death and life in this world are kind of intertwined. They're almost inseparable. The wildness and terror of the animal world is not so easily removed. Either the antelope dies or the, the, the lion cubs die. Job, you can't just remove uh, death and terror from this world without removing life also. They're, they're intertwined. One writer puts it like this, if the lion was just to lie down with the lamb, there would be a lot of starving lion cubs. I think he's right. No, there are no easy answers, Job. There's no simple solutions. Death and evil and darkness cannot simply just be removed. They must be overcome. They must be overwhelmed. They must be uh, defeated. Darkness must be overwhelmed by light and death uh, must be overcome by life. And we see more clearly how God has done this, don't we? We see things in our Bible that would stop Job's heart. He would be amazed to see God's answers to his questions about pain and suffering and death and danger. We're on the run up to Christmas now. And at Christmas, we remember that the Lord of the cosmos became a creature. He entered his world. He became a man. He took on flesh and blood and today is the first day of advent and as we think about god becoming man that shouldn't give us less awe we see god's rule of the world and we are we are amazed we are amazed at our great creator but the fact that our creator became a man should fill us with even more awe his great kind of condescension to be with us isn't a domestication C.S. Lewis says in his uh, Narnia books, he speaks of Aslan, the lion. He says he's not a tame lion. And sometimes I think because God became man, we think he somehow became tame. We think he, he became less. But he's worthy of, of more praise. He's worthy of, of all our praise. We should magnify him all the more because he became one of us. The Lord of the cosmos was light, stepping down into a dark world. It says in John that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. He came in flesh, facing the terrors of evil and taking death as his weapon. He submitted to death and overcame it. He overwhelmed it by his life. And in doing that, he... He secured a, a certain and a sure future for us. He secured that, that end where the, the pure kindness and the utter goodness of God will be there for all to see. 
And we have more pictures in the Bible of what the end looks like. And I just want to read a couple of them to you as we close. From Revelation. I was reading these this morning and uh, they made me feel homesick as I read these passages in Revelation, especially having spent this last couple of months in Job. These passages, they just make you long for home. So Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And then flip flip over the page to Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great city street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign with him forever and ever. They're glorious words, aren't they? And that has all been achieved by Jesus Christ on our behalf. Through his life and death and resurrection. What's God saying to us in this poem this morning? I think he's calling us to consider the trials and pains we feel in this world, in light of this world as it currently is, in all its complexities. A world that is a world of order, but also a world of chaos. A world that is good, but also has evil within it. A world that has both light and darkness. And he's calling us to see that pure goodness that lies just beneath the surface. He's calling us, no matter what we're going through, to keep trusting our good God. And he's giving us a hint of the world that will one day be. When all wickedness will be shaken out like a a rug. Like the crumbs off a blanket. Things may look haphazard now. Things may appear to our eyes that sometimes God has lost control. But he hasn't. He is doing exactly what he pleases. He's Lord of the cosmos. He's Lord over light and darkness. He's Lord over good and evil. He's Lord over order and chaos. 
And our response this morning is just to humble ourselves before him. And in our humility to trust him and to keep our eyes on that glorious end that awaits all the followers of Jesus. I'm going to pray uh, and then we'll sing our final song.